Welcome back to the Summer of Evolution. We are in Innovation Week, and we could not go throughout this week without relifting an incredible conversation we had with the infamous Dan Pallada. If you don't know Dan, he had an incredible TED Talk that I can still remember watching for the first time that went viral about a decade ago called The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong. Tune into this episode, friends, because we are talking about nonprofit disruption marketing. And I would love this quote that I remember Dan left us with, and it was, if you're not being laughed at, you're not dreaming big enough. We are right on the heels of Dan dropping this incredible documentary film he's been working on that's a follow-up to his TED Talk called Uncharitable in September 2023. We hope you check that out, but listen in here. This is going to give you some incredible nuggets for how to infuse innovation into your organization. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Welcome, welcome. Becky, what a big day. The day is here. <laughs> We've been counting down the days. When we start, I mean, this would almost be the impetus of why you would start a podcast is to just simply have a platform to talk to our guests today. Mm -hmm. And I have been thinking about how I would even begin to intro our friend Dan Pallotta. Um, I plan nothing <laughs> because I wanted it to come from the heart, but I kind of want to take everybody back about seven, eight years ago. I am on a, we've talked about this several times. I'm on a TED Talk binge and where I would just watch everything that was on. And I was just so intrigued by the concept of TED and just the way that it could curate these innovators in the world in such a short span of time. And I watched this TED Talk. And I'm sure Dan hears this every time he goes to talk to anybody, but it was so revolutionary in my life. Um, and Dan gives this TED Talk that went viral. And I mean, viral still continues to get millions and millions of hits around the world. And he is basically talking about the way we think about charity is dead wrong. And I felt my the ax, the world tilt on its axis a little bit after I watched <laughs> it. I have sent it to probably... 50 people in my lifetime, including every boss that I've ever had. And today we are talking to the disruptor of all disruptors, the man who I felt like for the first time in my nonprofit career, I saw somebody that represented my thoughts and my ideas. And I'm just geeked out. So Dan, welcome to the We Are For Good podcast. We're a little <laughs> bit excited that you're here. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Becky and John, and thanks for that big, big buildup. I hope I can live up to it, but um, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation, and um, you know, thanks for creating a place for ideas like this. These are the conversations that we need to be lifting up, and I really just want to kick it to Dan and just say, tell us your story and how you even got into the nonprofit sector and why you started speaking up for things that truly matter. Well, I guess it probably started for me. You know, it probably started when I was a kid. I was born. I was born the first day of John Kennedy's presidency, and so I, you know, my formative years were 
I was surrounded by images of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and John Kennedy. And, you know, these were young people talking about love and justice in the same sentence. Um, it was also the era of the Vietnam War. So, you know, when I was six or seven or eight years old, my parents were watching Walter Cronkite every night talk about the, you know, the body counts. And it, it was it was unending and it gave me a sense of that the human con condition was futility that we were unable to transcend our circumstances. It was also the era of Apollo, right? So I was eight years old when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, like so many other eight years old, my eyes were just glued to the television set during that whole mission, watching the docking sequences, the undocking sequences, the landing, everything else. And so that was a, that was a powerful stew of things that made me, um, want to make a difference in the world, rebel against futility, but I also wanted to do something as big as going to the moon. And then I guess it was in college when um, I was studying world hunger for the first time and learning about the massive mortality. I chaired our hunger action committee. We were doing these little fundraisers that seemed very not big to me. And um, so I wanted to do something big and organized a bike ride across America. I got 38 of my classmates to Bicycle 4,200 miles across the continental United States with me during the <laughs> very hot summer of 1983. And that's where um, the metaphor of the journey became powerful for me. You know, the very difficult journey, the arduous journey that took us nine and a half weeks pedaling our bikes 4,200 miles, uh, 69 days. Um, the intersection of, of that and coming to the aid of the of the disenfranchised and then, and the, the abandoned in the world. Wow. Dan Plot is such a good dude. <laughs> and I love the humble brag of just, we just biked 4,200 miles and, just and you got all of these people to do it. And really it, it underscores our belief that community is everything. And if you can get people to believe very much in the mission of something, they will work and they will hustle to see it through to the end. And then you have a rabid fan there who you can, pour into your mission even further. I love that you saw this so early. Yeah, it's got to be, you know, you got to give them a dream. That, that That's the thing. Um, and I think too many nonprofit organizations and, and even, you know, political leaders want to make it as easy as possible for people. And that's not what their spirits want. You know, mm. they, they want to live into a dream. And so when, when you tell someone that who's lost their friends to AIDS, you can stick a red ribbon on your jacket or you can work your ass off for a year and, and ride your bike 600 miles from San Francisco to Los Angeles and raise $2,000 and scare the hell out of yourself in the process of asking <laughs> all those people for that money. They'll pick the latter. Yeah. I mean, I love that you bring up dreaming. Um, it's real serendipitous. We were you know, interviewing another guest this morning and she talked about just the limitations that nonprofits feel with so much restricted funding coming into the to play. And she was the recipient of this huge gift from Mackenzie Scott that was unrestricted. And she said it allowed us to run. It allowed us to dream. It allowed us to just activate. And I feel like that's what you have been really championing for a long time, saying nonprofits can have these answers and have these big dreams, but they can't get held back by these, by looking at the wrong metrics of if we're successful or not. And it's keeping things so small. You know, I, I love that you've been kind of preaching that or similar to that if I haven't botched it for a decade, you know? Yeah. In the, in the Ted talk, I use the, the metaphor of a, of a, of a rule book that the, 
you know, there are two rule books. The for-profit sector gets to play by one that has a lot of freedoms and the nonprofit sector has to play by one that has a lot of restrictions. And, and since then, I've been using the metaphor of a prison, that the nonprofit sector is in prison and the for-profit sector roams free. Uh, and, and even, and even when we dream, we dream in miniature. Um, you know, we don't dream on the scale that Elon Musk is dreaming and that Mark Zuckerberg is dreaming and that Jeff Bezos is dreaming. I mean, these are people who are lack any ounce of self-consciousness about the scale of their dreams, right? Come right out and say it, colonize Mars, you know, bring humanity to another planet. But you try and get a person in a nonprofit to say it's their dream to end hunger in the city of Boston in the next 10 years. You try, I've tried. They, you know, they just can't bring themselves to do it. They just can't bring themselves to think that big. It's, it's hubris to think that big, you know, it's ego to think that big. I, uh, you know, uh, well, my dream, my dream is if we could hire another major gift fundraiser, like really, man, really? Like you, I, you don't have to do it. Just say it. Just say it. Come yeah. on. What's in your heart? Yeah. Just say it. Like if you couldn't fail, what is it? Can't do it. Do you think it's because people are just so preconditioned because the next answer is going to be, I mean, here's all the limitations. I mean, you don't have the budget to do that. It's going to cost too much to do that. It's too. Yeah. Well, we work in the, in the no sector, right? It's the, it's the no profit <laughs> sector, the non-profit <laughs> sector, <the> sector. <laughs> and so the, the word profit actually comes from the, the Latin for progress. So it's that literally like the no progress sector. And there's, I think there's, you know, I think there's a, I'm gay. I'm very familiar with what oppression sickness is. And I think there's a serious oppression sickness in the nonprofit sector um, that we're so used to, um, you know, what Mackenzie's doing is great, but still recognize that we're grateful for what a dreamer is doing for us, right? We subjugate ourselves to the dreamer, even in that even in that scenario, what Joan Kroc did for the Salvation Army, oh, isn't she's a saint? Well, you know, what about us? Why can't why can't we create entities as big as Apple for solving the world's problems? They're only individuals at Apple. That's all they are. But they managed to put a smartphone in the hands of pretty much every human being on the earth and a Mac on, you know, 10% of everybody's desk. They're just human beings with capital. Government is just human beings with capital. We're human beings too. Why aren't we capable of achieving things on that on that kind of a scale? You know, people are aghast when you say that. Oh no, government has to do it. Well, if government can do it, great. But they haven't demonstrated the ability so far. I'd like to see people of ingenuity stimulating public concern on a mass level, selling the idea of a better world on a mass level, the way we sell caffeine and, and uh, you know, watches and everything else um, and get ourselves out of this prison because we didn't do anything wrong. You know, we don't deserve to be in prison. No human being. It's a horrible thing. And it's ironic. Like, well, like the poor person that you're trying to help, you know, the entrepreneur that you're trying to help, the poor entrepreneur who's starting a business, you want to see that business grow, right? You want to see them maybe get wealthy, but no, not yourself, not your organization. There's just, there's this internal inconsistency to it. 
I mean, I'm going to call this the Pilata pulpit because I just am sitting here listening to you preach and I just am cheering in my head. I'm like, yes, you're saying it. This is exactly what we need. We need a revolution. We call it an impact uprising in, in our organization. And it's about shifting the lens of everything in the way that we talk, in the way that we engage, in the way that we infuse, in the way that we empower. And I love just this unapologetic approach to this is how we can really solve human suffering, because you're right. Anybody that's sitting in Apple is a human being just like we are. But I would even submit to you that people that are in the nonprofit sector have the level of compassion and the level of sacrifice that could even elevate creativity, ingenuity to another level because we don't want to see failure. We know what failure looks like. We've seen it in the eyes of the people that we're trying to serve and the people that we're trying to help solve these crises around them. And I love that you brought up Elon Musk because we have a very dear friend who said, says that if Elon Musk says that he can colonize Mars in a decade, why can we not end the water crisis in the world in the exact same time? Why do we have to move outside our own planet when we still have major issues of basic human rights and basic human um, like response? Yeah, yeah, to end suffering. So I love all of this. Um, I also want to give a shout out to just what you do with marketing and advertising, because I think that the way that you leverage um, the power of words and platform is a beautiful thing. Um, Dan's group has a great ad campaign that's going on called I Am Overhead, which I am just geeking out on. And the thing that you say is we've got to humanize overhead because overhead is people. When we talk about overhead and we talk about not investing in overhead, we're saying that we're not going to invest in people. And it's the people who are passionate about these issues. And it's the people who are going to solve the problem. So I would love to get your uh, just take on the overhead crisis and how our listeners and all of us can lean into combating it. Yeah, I want to just go back to something you said earlier that like maybe in the, in the nonprofit sector, we can even do more than Apple. Um, because of sacrificing, because we're unwilling to see failure. I actually think we have a high tolerance for seeing failure. I think we've seen failure for a long time and we've gotten quite accustomed to it. And um, I think we actually need to break out of that willingness to live with the, the failure to end poverty and the failure to end hunger and the failure to cure cancer. And I, I think also that we have to rewire um, what kind of sacrifice we value, right? We value financial sacrifice, like the person who's willing to sacrifice themselves financially. Um, I, I remember a mentor of mine once saying, I don't, I don't, I don't have respect for someone who's old. I, I have, I have respect for, um, people and I don't have respect for, people who sacrifice money necessarily. It doesn't necessarily make a difference. I have respect for people who are willing to sacrifice their reputation. People who are willing to sacrifice their reputation, put their ass on the line for some audacious dream that they don't know whether or not they can achieve and they're not sure how they're going to achieve it, but they're fully committed to it and they're willing to have the world laugh at them while they're, they're, they attempt it. To me... The willingness to sacrifice your reputation eats the willingness to sacrifice money for lunch 
in the domain of, of making a difference. Um, and, and I think we also have to recognize in the nonprofit sector, there's a certain arrogance to thinking that, well, well we're, the, we're the people who really make a difference in the world. Oh, really? So you don't think the people at Apple who developed the ability to do an electrocardiogram in 30 seconds on your wrist, you don't think that makes any difference, huh? You don't think the iPhone <laughs> makes a difference in the lives of the blind. You don't think the iPad is making a difference in education. You don't think Zoom <laughs> makes a difference, which is allowing us to spread this message about making a difference around the world wherever we want to spread it, right? So get over this notion that you're the only one that, that makes a difference. Get over your sackcloth and ashes get over your sacrificial mentality and get in the business of producing results and ask yourself, what is the result you actually want to produce? Like say it and, and, and not, well, if we could, you know, if we could meet our budget this year, that's not your dream. That's not your dream. Go deeper. Well, I'd like to have, you know, I'd like to have money to do the new marketing campaign. Really, that's what you want on your grave. Did the new marketing campaign. <laughs> deeper. You, you want to solve problems. Name them. I want to cure cancer in the next 10 years. Say it. Say it. You know, what is it that you want to achieve? Because if you don't say what you want to achieve, like at the deepest level of your heart, you are lost. You are lost and you will be at the mercy of some kind of a fog of confusion and a sense of lack of purpose about your work, no matter what kind of 501c3 status it has attached to it. Just some self-reflection of just, man, we are just selling ourselves short. We're selling our missions short. We're selling these problems that could be eradicated. And, you know, Becky, and I do have a dear friend that his mission is to eradicate, to go out of business because we solved the crisis, but that's a very rare organization to see, you know, we have to look yeah. far to find that. What do you think is holding people back, Dan? And I also want to hear what are some of the naysayers saying to you, because it's not lost on me that you were one to stand up and put your reputation on the line to stand up and be the counter argument to, you know, all this tradition and expectation of cost to raise a dollar and all these things. Sorry to throw two questions at you. But. Yeah, well, the first thing, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the human condition to, to lower your horizons, I think, because you people are afraid that they'll be laughed at. And, and I've always said, if you're, if you're not being laughed at, you, you are not dreaming big enough. Oh. Like seriously, if people aren't ridiculing you in a way that's painful for you, you're not thinking big enough. Mario Andretti, the famous race car driver, used to say, if you don't feel out of control, you're not going fast enough. Um, and, and I think that's true. And if you look at the ridicule that's been laid on Elon Musk, I mean, by the legacy auto manufacturers and by the space experts, by his heroes, by heroes of his in the space program, laughing at him. You know, it's just like painful, painful stuff. You imagine, imagine Walt Disney at the age of 15 walking around with this drawing of a mouse and telling people, I think it's got a lot of potential, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like try to erase hindsight from your brain and you're looking at a 15 year old kid with a drawing of a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember this Bruce Springsteen used to tell this story at his concerts about how he and his dad never got along and he had long hair and they'd always fight. And his father didn't know why he was playing the guitar. And his father was waiting up for him one night 
when he came home sitting in the kitchen and his father said to Springsteen, what do you think you're doing with yourself? And Springsteen said the worst part about it was I could never explain it to him. Um, it's in that moment where who you are is really tested. How do you tell your father, I'm going to be Bruce Springsteen, right? When that means nothing <laughs> prior to Bruce Springsteen being invented. Um, and so, so I think it's, I think it's part of the human condition. I also think we have some of our values are, are, are mixed up in it. Like we don't want to make a promise and then not deliver on the promise because we feel that we're dishonoring our word. But I don't think it's dishonoring your word if you make a promise and you don't keep it. I think it's dishonoring your word if you make a promise and don't keep it and then act as if you never made the promise in the first place. That's dishonoring your word. But to, to actually make the effort and fail and explain to people why you failed and then perhaps make a new promise. I thought we were going to end hunger by 2025. We didn't do it. Um, here, but here's what we learned. And here's the progress we made as a result of that audacity. We're making a new promise. We're going to end it by 2030. I, I applaud you. We're taking a quick pause to get real with you, friends. Because let's face it, it's a new world. Donor expectations are higher than ever, and donors want to know what their personal impact will be, which means we need to start by building a truly resonant message. And if you follow We Are For Good, you know we're advocates for nonprofits' need to disrupt and adapt in order to grow. And our friends at Foster Avenue agree. You might know Foster Avenue by their former name, Snavely Associates. But here's the thing. They're evolving alongside the sector, too. As a philanthropic communications consulting and creative agency, they see how campaign communications are facing a revolution these days. And luckily for us, they're sharing their insights. The Foster Avenue team is sharing a 10-point checklist for creating campaign communications that meet the moment. And we want to get this checklist into your hands so you can start refining your messaging right away. Grab it today at fosteravenue.com backslash good. So whether your campaign launch is three years away or six months away, Foster Avenue can help you accelerate to the next phase. We want to see your campaign have all kinds of success. So hope you will check out Foster Avenue. That's fosteravenue.com slash good. You are so right. And it is, and it is about a global mind shift, you know, as a mindset shift. And I, and I, we have a lot of people that are, that are new young professionals in the, in the nonprofit space. And I just believe Gen Xers and or Gen Zers and millennials, you are the ones that we think can turn the tide on the way nonprofit is viewed in the way that we operate in the way that we engage and I, I'm here to tell you that your disruptor is right here. Your your creative rebel is sitting here on this podcast right now. And I want to give you an example of why it's important to stand up and be the one that everybody thinks is crazy, the one who's being laughed at. Dan stood up and had this 18-minute TED Talk. And then three minutes, or three minutes, it could have been three minutes after it launched, three months after the TED Talk went live, GuideStar, Charity Navigator, and the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance did a complete about face. It was like the coup of the season, in my opinion, you know, as the three leading resources for nonprofit data and announcing that they were denouncing the overhead ratio as a valid indicator of nonprofit performance. When you speak up, 
when you are brave enough to say the thing that is on the hearts of so many, when you have capacity to dream, incredible movements begin to ripple, ripple, ripple. And I have to tell you, I love this notion of picturing little Dan, like watching the shuttle launch. And you literally, if you get on the YouTube, you can see in the background, Dan literally has a shuttle in the background (laughs) of his office, which is amazing. Saturn five. Right. Okay. There you go. The new one. So I, I just think that if you have someone like Dan who has this heart for justice, you have a pinch it for creativity and you can speak up and, and be okay with being the one that's being laughed at. They will not be laughing in 10 years because a movement can come behind you. You have little people in Oklahoma who say, Dan, you saw us. You were the creative rebel who was brave enough to step out there and say this. And now we're looking at a different arc that's kind of hitting our sector. And so my question to you, Dan, is there are people listening in here who are going to say, yes, I 100% believe in this ideology. I believe that I want to be a part of change and about shifting this narrative. How could someone lean into what you're doing? We're going to talk about the Charity Defense Council in just a second, but how could they lean into that? How could they lean into this notion of we've got to start disrupting? Because I do think it starts within community and wherever they are in the world. Well, first of all, you've got to um, analyze your own assumptions and be careful of thinking that because you're 22 years old, and you're having a new thought. Yeah, excuse me. You're 22 years old and you're having a thought for the first time that it's a new thought. It could be that it's a very old thought. I, I speak to a lot of college students who are very traditional. They have very, very traditional thinking about charity because they grew up on it and they've been infected by the same media as the rest of us. So their idea of being young and innovative and progressive is charity shouldn't pay people very much money. Well, that's a very old idea. That's a very counterproductive idea. That's not a very young, new idea. They have the idea that charity should be very frugal and not spend very much money on anything other than giving it to the people who need it. That's a very old idea. That's a very counterproductive idea. So you got to check your own ideas. I would encourage you to you know, watch my TED Talk or read one of my books or somebody else's book. And then you've got to come out about your dreams. You know, if you're working for a nonprofit organization, you got to come out to donors. you got to say, I'm, I'm not here to have them carve. I kept the overhead low on my grave. I'm here to solve this specific problem. And in order to solve this specific problem, I need these resources. And one of the things I learned over the course of the last 15 years in speaking about this is that uh, people want to educate their donors, but they don't know how. They don't know what to say. And they haven't said it as often as I've said it. So they're, you know, understandably not as articulate about, about it. So in the last couple of years, I've created tools specifically for changing donors' minds, like a, a new little book I have called The Everyday Philanthropist that literally takes an hour to read. It reads in an hour. Like a, you could spend an hour scrolling around on Facebook or you could like change your whole perspective on charity in an hour, fits in your pocket. It's got it your thrown. Team, you know? um, it's got big type and big graphs and it's really easy to understand. It's and for rounded anybody, corners. And everybody. 
And I created these online trainings called the Bold Training for nonprofit staff and boards and donors. So, so I've created lots of tools that people can find on my website for actually evangelizing. And you don't, you don't have to do it yourself. You can let these tools do it. So by coming out about your real dreams, that's the bravest thing you can, you can do. You know, probably like coming out, coming out about my sexual orientation is probably the, it's probably the bravest thing that I did or do. You know, people think that you come out once when you're gay. Like, when you're 19, you come out. Uh uh-uh, nope. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm much older now and I can be in a cab and the cab driver can start up a conversation about family and I say, I have triplets. And he says, oh my God, how's your wife feel about that? Okay. Well, now I get to decide whether I want to have a transformative conversation with a cab driver in a city that I don't know um, and what's going to happen to me. And I don't know what his prejudices are or beliefs. So, you know, you got to like come out every day. We've been way too timid in the nonprofit sector. You know, well, let's tell donors what they need to hear. Donor trust, donor trust. I'm all for donor trust. Yes, we want donors to trust us. But on the basis of what? on the basis that we just told them we have low overhead and we know that low overhead means we ain't going to be able to make much of a difference. Well, that's not a very nice thing to have your donors trust in or trust in your dreams and trust in the resources that you need for those dreams. That's the thing you want your donors to have trust in. And I have a strong sense that that is why our boards aren't leaned in, why our teams are not engaged, why your staff is not performing because they're not, hooked into that big dream that they feel connected to this big idea that they could perpetuate or be a part of. It just changes the way you act and take action and just the urgency of it. If you're plugged into something that's much more impactful, meaningful. People say to me, how do I get my donors more engaged? How do I get my board more engaged? Stop boring them to death. You know, I mean, Jesus, come up with a dream that's so exciting that they cannot say no to it. You know, you watch, I have the model of the Saturn V rocket behind me, you know, the the, the ship that got us to the moon that brought Apollo 11 and 12 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 to the moon. And you watch documentaries on the Apollo program and you look at those people who, you know, the flight directors and the people who did the math and the people who built, fabricated the spacesuits, they they look back on that time. And in the interviews, there are just tears in their eyes. They're just like grown people weeping because of the beauty of exploring the full potential of your humanity. And um, you don't do that. You're trying to figure out how to scheme a donor to give you more money for overhead and it's without purpose, you know, you're not up to something big in the world. Good luck. Here's what I'm, what I'm hearing is when we're positioning and we have, we have this conversation so many times about the new way to partner with a donor. It, the old ways, I hope they go to bed and I hope they never come back in COVID and the ways that we would traditionally engage with them. But if you asked a donor, would you come alongside me to explore the full potential of your humanity versus would you consider buying a table at my gala? I know which one's going to inspire somebody. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And they want to look, people got money. I'll tell you, I, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people who have, they have a lot of money. They don't know where to put it. 
they don't know where to put it that it's actually going to make a difference. They're, they're by and large dissatisfied where, where they have to put it. So a lot of them end up just sticking it on the name of a big, you know, $50 million law school building because at least they can see, well, there's a building there and it's got my name on it, you know, because we're not very good at packaging dreams in health and human services. Um, and we got to get much better at packaging dreams in health and human services the way Harvard is good at packaging a new science center because higher education is eating the lunch of health and human services because they're dreaming much bigger than we are. Yeah. And, and to think that this could all start with just doing exactly with what you did. If we could just step out on that stage just a little bit, maybe the stage is just across the seat from your donor in their office or on Zoom. And just literally launch the scale of our dreams in those words. If that could inspire someone to not only give, but to lean in, I have to think, and I'm an idealist, so I probably would think this, that so much good can come from that. Because when you're leaned into the dream, you understand that it's going to take everybody pouring into it. We've got to be inclusive in those spaces. Our number one core value of our company is everyone matters. We've got to make a seat at the table. We talk about the boards. We don't want to bore them. No, we don't. But we also want our boards to be representative of the populations we're serving. If somebody's not at that table and we're sitting there, we need to scooch over and give them a space. I'd also think that other things would come from it. Greater potential for risk capital. If they see that you have these creative ideas, Ideas that are actually building traction in a very untraditional way, then they're going to give you more, more leg room, more of a runway to keep trying more things. We talk about throwing spaghetti at the wall. We've got to just try stuff in this sector. And I am just geeking out over everything that you're saying. And I know we have a million questions that we're not getting to because we're just talking to Dan, which is amazing. So sorry, John, go ahead. Well, I mean, Dan's had a lot of dreams, but one of them I would love to dive into is this, you started the Charity Defense Council. And I know your end game was not to create a council. Your end game was to change the way the media and the public views things like overhead in the nonprofit space. So that's a huge audacious dream. And maybe it's even bigger than that, but would you give us the background of that organization and how are y'all activating on that now? Yeah, well, it was basically after I wrote Uncharitable, which was a book about the problem, I wanted to write a book about what's the solution. Well, if the problem is the general public has all the wrong ideas about charity, then you got to change the way the general public thinks about charity. Now, leaders and thought leaders in the sector, they've started to come around to the idea that inside the sector, we think about it all wrong. And so it's very insular. So we issue press releases to one another. Hey, we're thinking about this all wrong, but we never go outside the walls of the castle to the general public. And that's where it's all happening. So I've always felt like, you know, the hell with the internal stuff. Let's go out to the people, you know, the people that are driving down the street right now. And when you look at that, like the answer is change the way the public thinks. And you look at the sector, you see it is devoid of any of the tools that you use for movement building. It doesn't have an ad agency. It doesn't have a legal defense fund. It doesn't have a legislative agenda. It doesn't have an anti-defamation force. It doesn't have a database of all of the people who work in the sector. 
There's no database of the 10 million people employed in the nonprofit sector. We've never taken out a full page ad in the New York Times or taken out an ad on the Super Bowl, Super Bowl to tell the general public what we do. We have, you know, every community has a legal defense fund. We don't have anything like that. So we're so so the Charity Defense Council is about, well, let's put some of those let's put some of those things in place. And, you know, I I kind of go where the love is and, and um, you know, the, the Charity Defense Council is alive and, and, you know, it's been really hard to get structural funding for it because people people want to fund poor children. Well, you're always going to have poor children if you don't solve these structural issues here. So right now, in fact, I was just on the on the Zoom before I hopped on this with Stephen Gyllenhaal, who is directing uh, a, a new documentary that I have coming out on my book on charitable. It'll be out in June, and it's going to be a very powerful tool. It's going to be more powerful than TED Talk. And Darren Walker's in it, who's the head of the Ford Foundation, uh, Billy Shore, who created No Kid Hungry, Chris Anderson, who runs TED, Edward Norton, the actor who started Crowd Rise, Katie Hood, who's the former CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, it's a really powerful uh, documentary film with real world examples of how this dysfunctional thinking screws things up. Can't wait. wait. Oh my gosh. We all want to figure out how to lean in to this topic more. And we've got to be a part of big change. If we're going to solve these big dreams, we've got to be able to be mobilized and to lean into it. So I, I want to ask you about a moment of philanthropy. You've had so many incredible opportunities to work with nonprofits in your lifetime. What is a a moment in philanthropy, a story that deeply moved you um, that you might share with our community today? Well, you know, we had 182,000 people ride or walk in one of the AIDS rides or breast cancer three days or um, out of the darkness, suicide prevention walks. And so, I mean, more stories than I could ever tell you of heroic people who were terrified of, you know, riding their bikes across Alaska or across Texas or across Montana. You know, my, my dad rode across the continental divide with me when he was 65 years old in the Montana AIDS vaccine ride. My mom's a breast cancer survivor, walked three days and 60 miles with me and my sisters in the breast cancer three day. It's just, it's those kinds of stories of average people in ragtag outfits of, all kinds of breathing dimensions and rear ends of all widths who, um, you know, didn't look like Lance Armstrong and, um, and committed themselves to these brave endeavors. Each of those is an act of philanthropy. Philanthropy comes from the, the Latin philos anthropos for love of humanity. And so you don't need to be a billionaire to be a philanthropist. You do something sacrificial in the name of others um, you know, you sacrifice your body, your reputation. Um, that's philanthropy. I, I wrote a blog once for Harvard Business Review. I used to write regularly for them. And Steve Jobs was being attacked while he was alive. He didn't give enough money away to charity. And I wrote a piece called Steve Jobs, World Greatest, World's Greatest Philanthropist. Because of what he contributed to humanity, you know, um, because of his love of humanity, his desire to democratize desktop publishing and movies and photographs and music. So, um, yeah, my stories, I've seen people give away tens of millions of dollars in in a moment. I've seen, you know, I've seen billionaires do it. But but my my stories are the ones of the average people you know, carpenters and the 
uh, nurses and the, the average people who took it upon themselves on top of everything else that was going on in their lives to do something philanthropically heroic for AIDS or breast cancer or suicide prevention. I mean, I just sit here and think about this conversation of dreams and what you've been able to ignite through that walk. I love that you, I, that your mom is a breast cancer survivor. That must just have been so rewarding for you to be able to pour more than 300 million um, dollars into research for that. It feels like a very nice love letter to your mother, but I'm really curious about your kids. And I would just think having a dad that everybody deserves to have a dad who loves them, but having a dad who literally says, I want to give you incredible space to dream your biggest dream. What is that like? And I'm wondering how you're infusing these ideals into the way that you are parenting and raising these three extraordinary humans. Well, you'd have to ask them, <laughs> but you know, they're human beings. So they have human DNA. So, so for one thing, like, you know, yeah, I'm this champion of charity and making a difference in the world. And, and my son Ryder is really into Minecraft, you know, um, <laughs> my daughter really, is really too. into Minecraft and he's really into Fortnite and he's really into, uh, call of duty. And, um, my daughter Sage is a wonderful, wonderful drummer. And, um, is learning to play the guitar and is learning to play the piano. And Annalisa is a wonderful writer and goes, goes to CrossFit every day and is doing the CrossFit challenge with all of these adults. Um, and, I, and I encourage them to dream their biggest dreams. And they're, they're haunted by the human condition, by the, by the narrative that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I couldn't do that. So we all battle that no matter who your father is, maybe even, you know, if your father is someone who's achieved a big dream, maybe maybe those demons are are, are even louder. I, I I I try to make them aware of the voice in their heads, and and that that's not them, that that's something other than them. Um, that who they are is is the listener, right? Who they are is the context for their lives. Um, whether it's getting through, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just have to see. I have enough trouble trying to get it through to my own head. <laughs> <laughs> we hear that. I mean, Dan has triplets. John has two sets of twins. Um, I just feel like I'm, feel like I'm not contributing much to this We're conversation with my singles. Right <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> so Dan, we ask all of our guests and man, I'm prepping for this one. What's your one good thing? Summing up all the advice you could impart on our listeners, what's something that you could say, you could do this today? What's one good thing? There's a line in a James Taylor song, uh, which I, I love, and I sing it in May. It's called Jolly Springtime. And, and there's the line where he says, everybody say got to live in today, don't nobody know how. And I think it's um, realize that life is happening right now. It isn't happening when this podcast is over and you get to apply the ideas. It isn't happening when you go get your dream impact job. It isn't happening when we convince the world not to think about over it. It's happening right now. <laughs> That's all you got. That's all you got is right now. It's all you ever had. It's all you're ever going to have is right now. So if you're not here right now, if you're not living right now, if you're not happy right now, um, if it's always off in the distance, that's the that's the greatest mistake you can make. And I, I think as a culture, we're really bad at being. Um, and it, it's almost that we're getting worse, that we're getting better and better at doing. Um, 
and you, I mean, for all of the importance of it and the value of it, you look at whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you look at the obsession with political discussion right now. It's all off in the future. It's all doing, it's all doing, it's all hating on other people. It's all, it's all this projection, this cinematic projection in our mind. And who was it? Seneca that said all, all of, all of humankind's problems come from people's inability to sit quietly alone in a room. And, and I believe that, you know, like you get, you start jonesing out if you just have to be, right? It's just not natural to us to just be, just sit here and do nothing and feel the wood on your hands and the temperature on your face and the pressure of the chair on your legs. Just sit here and be, shut up. <laughs> you know, you got nothing to contribute. Just be, I think that'd be, that'd be my one good thing. I think that was such a beautiful manifesto. We didn't talk about the fact that Dan inspired John and I to write our first organizational manifesto. It had to be um, 10 years ago. There yeah, I think it was yeah. 10 years ago in our, in our healthcare organization. And we wrote one and we've even written one for here. It was the flag. <laughs> um, yeah. It was, and if you, I just think the manifesto concept is so great, but I, I love what you're saying because I think it's an, incredible way to just tie up this amazing conversation. We've had a conversation about equalizing and about, and not even coming down. I don't mean to come down as equalize. I mean, for us to rise up. And I think that this notion of do something and not even just rewrite this narrative for nonprofit, I would say, look inside yourself. What is the narrative? What is your brand? What do people say about you as a human being? How are you living your truth? And step up and be the person that you want to be and step out, be a champion for the cause that you are so passionate about. Maybe your mother is a breast cancer survivor. You know, maybe you have somebody who's fighting through something right now. Be their champion. You can do that in the space that you are. You can do it with your voice. You can do it with your resources. You can do it with your volunteerism. And I'm telling you, we all know in our living proof that charities need us that nonprofits need us, that social good needs us, that entrepreneurs need us. And so thank you, Dan, for being the great equalizer, for seeing every single human and being the scrappy same little boy that was watching the coverage of NASA with on wonder. And the fact that you have followed your wanderlust to innovate this sector is one of the greatest legacies I think that anybody could give. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much for, for having me. It's been a pleasure to have the conversation and uh, I, I uh, salute what it is that you're up to in the world. Thank you. And thank our, you. and our thanks to our dear friend, Matthew Zachary, my New York brother from another mother for making this <laughs> connection and encouraging us to be rebels. Uh, we felt like we found a fellow disruptor there. So it's good to be around my like-minded friends. Dan, what's the best way people can connect with you online and follow all your good work? Yeah, go to danpilata.com and you can get in touch with me there. You can buy a kit, you can buy a book, you can buy a bold training, you can buy Humankind Be Both t shirt. <laughs> you can, you know, um, danpilata.com is the best way to be in touch. So this has been amazing. Yep. Thank you for, for coming, here, Dan. Dan. We're so we glad to know you. you and amplify your great work. Thanks so much for being here. We hope you're loving the Summer of Evolution series. And to learn more, you can head over to weareforgood.com slash evolution for all the playlists, resources, and other ways to help you get inspired and activated this summer. 
We'd also love for you to join the conversation, share what you're learning on social media, or join us at our free community at weareforgoodcommunity.com. Bonus points for snapping a picture and showing us where you're listening from. Can't wait for the next conversation. See you soon, friends. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.